This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Namai, hari mai, kiora tanakwe, free of him, 89.0, independent community media. Good afternoon, Bruce Scott aboard with Mel Driscoll and guests. We'll have some interesting chat very, very shortly. But personally, and this is my own opinion, last Sunday, between just after six o'clock when I was returning to the station after having afternoon tea and something to eat, I was walking through Wintech. And from the other side of the road, near Centre Place, a man was yelling abuse at me. I know this guy. I used to live with the guy. This is the third time this man has treated me badly. I won't repeat what the slurs he was making at me at the moment, at the time. Yes, this man is bad news. He is the man who sleeps in Nisbet Street by Wintech there. As I was climbing the steps, he his aim was to come and assault me. But he was stopped when a lady, a nice lady from the Arise Church came out to see what was going on. She heard all the abuse and said, come on, come into the building. No, I said, I'm going to campus security. I'd like to thank campus security for looking after me last week. Um, and I was escorted to the walk bridge between uh, Wintech and and Hill Street as I came back to the station. I have asked, asked and asked for him to be removed from the area. He is a dangerous man and his aim was to assault me. He accused me of many, many things that day, including being, well, I won't repeat them on air, but this man is dangerous. The police weren't helpful. They said, ring 105, we'll come down to the police station. I wasn't leaving the campus while this man was still wandering around the campus. No way. And 105, this is a very serious matter. This is a very serious, dangerous man. Who's This is the third time he's tried to assault me. So that's my personal view on this Sunday afternoon. So it's 17 minutes to 1 o'clock. So this afternoon, hopefully, I'll be safe for the rest of the day. Well, it's October 23, 2022, day 296.96 to go. 1942, this day, 80 years ago, the Battle of El Alamein. The turning point in the North African campaign the Battle of Wills between Bernard Montgomery and Erwin Rommel. 13,360 Allies die. The Axis lost between two and 9,000. New Zealand had a place in history as being part of the battle, and they did play a key role.
FM 89.0, independent community media, Kay Kaiser and his band, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Today, of course, is the anniversary of the Battle of El Alamein. And uh, that's from 1942. Moving up to 1946, 82 years ago today, songwriter and producer Ellie Greenwich, born Brooklyn, New York, associated with the late Phil Spector and the late Jeff Barry. Be My Baby, Then He Kiss Me, Hanky Panky, River Deep Mountain High, among her compositions. Um, Greenwich produced Dusty Springfield, and Greenwich died of a heart attack August 26, 2009. Greenwich was associated with this band, The Crystals, Phil Spector, and A Wall of Sound, or Do Ron Ron.
FM 89.0 Independent Community Media. This is Cosmopolitan News and Views. The Crystals, do do run run. It is Sunday afternoon, beautiful day outside as I travel in from um, Hamilton East and uh, a great day. Let's just look at um, some of what's going on with uh, some of the headlines and let's see uh, what has been happening around uh, your area in the last uh, couple of hours. So I'll just bring up stuff and just to see what has been uh, happening in the national news, if you've missed the news today, and what else has been happening in the news. Well, the Labour weekend death toll rises to three, and um, the story this morning I saw, the developer who demolished the outrageous Fortune House cancels the contract. So uh, those are a couple of the uh, headlines that are going out there at the moment. And as I said, coming into uh, the city this morning, it's amazing where I live that I can see uh, action going on. There was a big party going on at um, Boys High as I went past this morning. Don't know what it was, but colourful characters and white outside. So what is happening at Boys High this afternoon? Does anybody know? Ten to one.
Free FM 89.0, independent community media, the fortune storm in a teacup. Hello, sir. And uh, especially to Carl Wright. Now, this time in a fortnight, we're interested to know in what you might be doing, uh, Carl, uh, because it's been the weekends that are starting to remind us of what summers are like. Well, uh, it's, uh, I've been lucky enough to, be, to have been picked for the New Zealand over 70s side. One, one uh, survived the uh, early teen. A lot of the older fellows have got bone problems, leg problems, knee problems. But I've managed to survive it, and I'm going to play for New Zealand in the Australian Championships, state championships. And what so, sport? Cricket. Cricket! Congratulations. Yes. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've been to Tasmania. I've been to most other parts of Australia, but not Tasmania. So it's going to be a new experience. Is it, is it, a, is it an ODI, is it? It's a 40 over. Usually we play 40 over matches. It could be 45, I think. Um, <laughs> sometimes when you play in the international series, they, they increase them to 45. But our normal local competition is a 40 over competition. It's interesting because the venue lawn system in Tasmania is where the birthplace is of two prominent Australian cricketers former Australian cricket captain Ricky Ponting and the retired cricketer and Australian selector David Boone Correct, yes You're going to face some opposition there locally Yeah, well yes, they, uh, I mean both those two cricketers are exceptional cricketers really, they uh, uh, Ricky Ponting is probably one of the most successful Australian captains ever. So, uh, and a pretty good guy too. A he game. Was he was. A, he was a pretty good opener as well. Pretty hard hitting opener. Well, of course, it was an era where we had, of course, the late Shane Warne also. Yes, indeed, they all played together pretty much. There was a game at the Northern Tasmania Cricket Association ground in Launceston between the Melbourne Cricket Club and the Launceston Cricket Club in 1851. Now that is reputed to have been Australia's first first-class cricket match ever. What do you well, think about that, Carl? Yeah, that, that's quite amazing. 1850s, yeah. It's, uh, it's a long time ago, isn't it? Lots of things have probably changed since then. In those days, they probably didn't even have a middle wicket. And, uh, and uh, nowadays, of course, it's a different game altogether with the three major formats that we play. So, yeah, interesting. I wonder what sort of format they played, what, how many days, whether it was unlimited days or how, how it went on. Well, looking back in cricket history, the games that featured WG Grace, they went on forever. They did. The timeless test against South Africa was something like 16 days, was it, or something like that. It was amazing. Well, coming... they still didn't get a result. The <laughs> boat was leaving, and they had to get on it to go or stay. Well, coming back to what are you are? Uh, are you a all rounder? Are you a bowler, or are you? Well, you're an all rounder, are you? Pretty much an all rounder. Yep. Um, usually open the bowling, and, and uh, in the past used to bat between somewhere between number one and number five. Can you bowl googlies? No pace. Uh, the googly's more the, the slower bowlers. I'm a swing bowler. The pace bowlers are usually one of two kinds. They're a, they're a bounce bowler, people who are pretty tall and bounce it into the wicket, or the shorter guys, or, well, I'm six foot one, 
um, the ones that um, swing the ball of the year. So you don't do a little dance like uh, Sir Richard Hadley did? No, <laughs> straight in. <laughs> and off a much shorter run-up these days, I can tell you that. Who taught you cricket, Carl? Uh, probably. I remember when I went to Friends School in Whanganui, um, I still think Friends School holds the record for getting the team out for the lowest score, which was three runs. And as an opening bowler, I think I got six for six for two. And my other opening bowler, a guy called Ian Parks, got four for nil, and there was one extra. And that, I still think, is the lowest score recorded in New Zealand. Are so you that's a, interesting. Are you an all-rounder? In yep. other sports, too? Yes, I did. I uh, played squash for New Zealand universities, um, played rugby for Massey. Uh, what else did I do? At school, I was the senior athletic champion, cross-country, um, soccer, played goalkeeper in the Manawatu Under-16 soccer side uh, in a tournament in Napier. So, yeah, pretty much all around, which is a little bit like my dad. He was a bit like that, but he suffered quite badly in the war and um, died a lot younger than I thought he should have. Well, I've just been Googling. New Zealand's lowest cricket score is 26. Guess who got the 11 runs? One Bert Sutcliffe. Bert Sutcliffe, yeah, one of New Zealand's best. You mentioned your father and um, the toll that the war exacted on him. You're referring to the Second World War? Second World War, yes. My father was in the 19th Battalion and uh, was based in Egypt and was captured at Ryazit Ridge on, with, the, uh, with the 5th Army, uh, yeah, 5th Army as they were heading to Alamein. Yeah. Oh! And I, he was captured and I think he's, I'm, I'm grateful that he was captured because in the following battle, I've just been reading a story on Kippenberger, and um, the 19th Battalion was almost wiped out. Well, it's quite interesting you say that, because today is the commemoration of that battle at El Alamein. We just mentioned it about 20 minutes ago, so it's quite fortuitous that yes. we've got the son of a, who, a person who was there at El Alamein with Montgomery and Rommel. Yep, absolutely, and... Uh, and the uh, Kippenberger uh, was regarded as one of New Zealand's uh, most successful um, general. Well, not general. He was a, I think, yes, he was a general. They um, would... Yeah, in the battle. So, and it's one we don't really know very much about. We never, well, I never heard about him at all. They were desperate days in the Western Desert. Yes. Could yep. have gone differently. Yes. Uh, he spent... Uh, probably three years in prison camp, and he escaped on that big march when the Russians came down towards Berlin, and he and a mate escaped on the way down. They uh, picked up, yeah, it was interesting. There's a, I could talk about that for quite a significant amount of time because there's a lot involved in it, but, uh, and then he was in, um, going up and down the lines with the uh, supply lines from France until the uh, English got hold of him and sent him back to uh, to mob him in England. Destroyed a lot of men at their prime who yep. were in the armed forces on both yep. sides. Yep, 
absolutely. He was uh, 16 stone 8 when he went away to war, and it was the heavyweight boxing champion on the troop ship going out to war, and he was about 10 stone 8 when he came back. It was a fight for survival. It was. What? Yep. Was, what, what, yeah, was your father a difficult prisoner? Because I've been watching the old uh, 70s TV show Colditz with David McCallum and Robert Wagner. Um, yes. And was, uh, your, was your father a difficult prisoner? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, the people in those days that were in the war never spoke very much about it, so it was always difficult for us as kids to um, get to find out exactly what did go on and it was only by sitting in the lounge and keeping quiet when he had a few mates down that we we heard about some of those escapades in the war but to be honest nothing about whether he was a difficult prisoner or not how did your mother come into the life of the rights well, Mum was, uh, when Dad came home, Dad was a wool classer working for Wright Stevenson's in Wellington. And when he came back from the war, they re-employed him and they sent him down to Invercargill, or Dunedin, Dunedin, Invercargill area. And Mum was a wren who'd been in the uh, driving trucks uh, in, around, in and around Dunedin for the, well, she was a, what do you call it, a uh, wren, yeah, Navy. So she was driving trucks for those and they met, I think, in Dunedin. So uh, that's where uh, mum and dad met. So that was quite interesting. So they were married down in, in Bacargill because mum's parents lived in Bacargill. Yeah, so that was an interesting one. And then uh, when dad got back after a couple of years, he got one of those uh, a lot farm allotments from for prisoners of war in the bin. And that's where I was born. And how is your mum managing these days? Well, mum's, uh, mum's still living on her own, which is amazing for, for someone that age. People, uh, we have people come in at night to see, to make sure that the house is locked up and she's okay and someone in the morning. But uh, the mind is willing, but the body isn't with uh, mum these days, which is a bit unfortunate. She's more or less um, confined to her chair. She has a walker, but apart from that, she's in pretty... I rang her the other day and she's in pretty good... Um, Pretty good spirits. She's so a good age. Mine's as sharp as a tack. How old is your mum? Hundred She's 102 next oh, Thursday. Oh, con- congratulations. Well, you'll be able to sit, uh, sit down with her when you next to talk to her and listen to the podcast of this interview. So Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, I will do that. You it's mentioned fantastic. that you're venturing into a part of Australia you haven't yet become acquainted with. The history is a bit daunting. Uh, firstly, it, it is surprising that Launceston is at the same latitude as Blenheim. We generally yeah. think of Australia as sort of where it's warmer. Yes, absolutely we do. So, yep, I, the temperatures are pretty much similar to what they are, I think, in Hamilton at the moment in Tasmania. And it was a town that was built by Europeans only since early in the 19th century. It's home to 87,000, of whom only 3.5% are Aborigine, whose forebears had survived genocidal hunts as punishment to accept European settlement. They have a very different Mm. history from ours. Totally different history from ours, yeah. Yeah, it is. 
Yes, it's been it's taken a while, I suppose, for the Aboriginals to be uh, to be included in a lot of things like that in Australia. Um, and it's something you know. I'm glad it's happening now. Um, certainly, a lot before a lot of test matches, you hear um, a lot of the Aboriginal background in the area and what they do, and um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. On yeah, the other hand, uh, the Europeans were also uh, very civilized. Uh, <laughs> In uh, Launceston, it's the first Australian city to put its sewers underground and get hydroelectric lighting. Oh, really? Archaeological evidence suggests that Aborigines have lived nearby at least 7,000 years ago, though they are likely to have made seasonal camps getting mutton birds on the coast as long as 35,000 years ago. How's that for history? That is history. 35,000 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at a picture. They had big storms in Tasmania a day ago, and I'm just looking at this picture by the network ABC. Boy, they really copped it. Yep, they did. Um, Western New South Wales, uh, Victoria and Tasmania, we were all a bit worried that, um, you know, we might not we might not play, but uh, apparently, no, she's all okay. She's all go. But back, back to the cricket, these people... These men aged over 70, anybody of them played um, representative cricket, say, for Northern Districts or Central Districts? Um, well, there's one that's played for New Zealand that's um, in his early days, and that's John Cushion. Oh, yeah, I already know him. Yep, John Cushion uh, is in the team. Uh, most of the others uh, uh, just have survived, been lucky enough to survive. Uh, some pretty good cricketers in there, Bevan Guthrie. Uh, Grant Baker from Wellington. Um, uh, Grant, I think, played for Wellington. Uh, just trying to think of some of the others. Um, Rod Smith for Auckland. Um, yeah. Well, as as, fam- as famous uh, as the cricketers are, we've got to think of two men. Richie Benno, the late Richie Benno, who later became a commentator. And also M- uh, the British umpire, the late Dickie Bird. They were personalities in their own right. Oh, they were, absolutely. I mean, uh, Dickie Bird, uh, unbelievable umpire, old Dickie Bird. Um, he almost set the standard for umpiring, didn't he, with a bit of character, a bit of humour. Um, and and there's, there's, um, he's, he's actually he's pretty unique, Dickie yep. Bird. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that was um, a real era. Yeah. And some of the old broadcasters that they had, McGillivray uh, um, and people like that, that yeah. were... Unbelievable, you know. Well, I, I'm thinking of Richard. I'm, yeah, him too. Um, I'm thinking of the Twelfth Man, the parody on Richie Benno. I can't play it on radio because it's rude. So um... yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> Richie. Oh man, what, uh, just such a unique voice. Such a unique voice. Are there, a pretty good guy too. Are there others of your family also involved in cricket or another sport? Uh, my sister was. Uh, my sister was involved in um, hockey in uh, in the Manawatu Horafanu area. Um, none of my other bro- none of the brothers were involved in any sort of sport like that. Um, none, none of our kids played hockey. My daughter Louis, uh, Melanie, she plays hockey, um, and they all did martial arts. My son Matthew did martial arts with Louise. And Hannah, 
they all did uh, martial arts, which is probably a good thing these days. Well, club cricket is pretty big in the Waikato. I'm just thinking of the Kaipaki Cricket Club out where their hall yep. is. Yes. You've been there, yep. have you? Yep. We, yep. we play, well, Kaipaki was a team that we did play. I'm not sure why we're not playing them now. I must ask the, uh, the management who organised the fixtures. But we've got, we play in a competition for over 40s. Uh, from um, about 13 clubs in South Auckland right through to Taupo, um, Tokoroa, um, Reparoa, <laughs> right across to Matapihi yep. in, in, in Napier, um, uh, in Tauranga, Be- right up to Waiuku. Because I do know that former New Zealand cricket representative John Parga has had a lot to do with the yes, Kai, the Kaipaki area and the hall because uh, yes. I, I used to live out in that area. I was yep. born and, well, I was raised in that area. And I know that hall very well. And they, they, uh, they put on the cricket grounds and look where it's come today. And tennis yeah, courts. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, it is. We, we play, used to play sort of home and away. Our, our series of games are usually home and away, but we had a game at Kaipaki, but I'm not sure whether it's, uh, it's been difficult for them to get a team of over 40s, I think. Yep. Um, They've got a team that plays in the normal competition, I think, in the um, in the Valley competition. There, there's a man out there, sorry, sadly he's deceased now, but uh, I don't know if you knew Bert Goodwin. No, I he didn't. was a he was a he was a resident of Kaipaki, and he had a lot to do with the cricket club out there. So I've seen the photos. But so when does this tournament start? The over seventies. The start. We start. We fly out on the sixth. Um, we've got a couple of days in Hobart, a uh, day in Swansea, and we the following day go down to Launceston, and then I think on the Tuesday we um, or the Wednesday it starts, and then we have three games. Uh, we go, we play uh, Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. They're in one slot, and then the other slot is um, Western Australia, South Australia, ACT, and Tasmania. And the winner of each section plays off in a final. What a so there's be there should be what one, two, three. We'll, we'll possibly get four if we get to the final. We'll have, we'll end up playing four teams. What a punishing routine that'll be. Yeah, yeah. You've been looking forward to this for a long time, Carl. Yes, it's been cancelled since uh, uh, 2020, so uh, finally we got the go-ahead to go. So we've been been looking forward for a couple of years. So if people bring up the photos online, what what sort of uniform are you wearing? Are you you dressed in black? Yes, uh, we're dressed in black and white. Black and white striped uh, jackets, uh, the normal... New Zealand tie, the white shirts, the and, uh, and, know, all that, and the yep. silver and the silver fern, and the silver fern. Yep, and a, bla- a, ba- a baggy black cap with the silver fern on it. We wish you all well, Carl Wright. Yeah, looking, looking forward. forward <laughs> yep, hey. I'll uh, I'll give you a ring and let you know how we got on. Hey, Carl, just before you go, we're going to play a song from the Glen Miller Orchestra from 1942 on the day we celebrate El Alamein when Johnny comes marching home. We're going to play that for your father and the other oh, cool. El Alamein veterans. Carl, will catch up with you when you return. Hopefully you're a winner. Thanks very much indeed. It's, Thank you for the it, interview. It, 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 really it, it's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here is the Glen Miller Orchestra, 1942.
comes marching home again. Hooray, hooray. We'll give him a hearty welcome then. Hooray, hooray. All the men will cheer and the boys will shout. The gals dress up and they'll all turn out. And we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home. Close up shop and break up camp And we'll all feel gay When Johnny comes marching home When Johnny comes marching home When Johnny comes marching home When Johnny comes marching Yeah, the Glen Miller Orchestra from 1942 when Johnny comes marching home. We'll be remembering El Alamein this day. It's the anniversary, the Battle of Wills between Montgomery and Rommel, having watched the Desert Fox movie with James Mason on YouTube the other day. Mel, who's next? It's this day in 1948, 74 years ago, that a National Airways Lockheed Electra is scheduled to land at Hamilton Airport on a flight from Palmerston North, but never makes it. Reports of an aircraft in trouble, confusing at first, finally lead searchers to Mount Ruapehu, where wreckage is found high on the mountain. It's by then a week after its takeoff. None survives the impact. The two crew and 11 passengers die instantly. The cause of the crash... The Commission of Inquiry finds the Central North Island has no navigation beacons to help a pilot reorientate an aircraft once off course, reliant on the plane's instruments. Not even five months later, another National Airways flight disappears from its scheduled course. Another Commission of Inquiry. The pilot, an RNZAF veteran, had been unable to check the Lodestar's location in relation to the ground near to landing at Paraparaumu. Thick cloud over foothills of the Tararua range left the cloud base at an estimated 800 feet, 240 metres, at the air traffic control tower. Permission was given the pilot to descend on instruments through the cloud. Shortly after, all contact ceases. Search planes sight burning wreckage 
1,500 feet up on a ridge near Waikanae in the Tararua foothills. It's March the 18th, 1949. About 50 searchers set out, blankets and stretchers strapped to a pack horse, but become benighted by fog till first light the next morning. Again, all on board had died instantly. This time, the death toll is 15. Again, a royal commission finds the crash due to faulty navigation. In such tragedies, searches often hinge on early detection of crash sites ranging over large areas when every minute may count to save life and limb. Communication in difficult terrain may be difficult and the first clues to where its focus lies can come from eyewitnesses who happen to have sophisticated equipment as radio hams do. And who are they? Well, that's what many wondered when three such enthusiasts took time out to begin their labour weekend enthralled in their hobby, searching the ionosphere for radio signals. The setting is a public reserve near the deserted Franklin Rail Station. No trains are passing through. Walkers and cyclists come by on the Western Rail Trail. Notice the 10-metre antennae hardly hearing the faint voices responding from afar. Listening intently, the amateur radio enthusiasts are Kylie Peterson and John Lisignoli of the Hamilton Radio Electronics Group and our guest on Access Radio, Free FM 89.0, Brian Farrell. It's in emergencies. We look to amateur radio enthusiasts, Brian. Well, thank you, Mel. It's such a privilege to be here with such a veteran broadcaster like yourself. <laughs> After 25 years, I feel it's a great privilege, and thank you for your public service. Well, it's 1928 when Amateur Radio came to New Zealand. Um, Brian, do you remember the call sign ZL1NZ? Uh, I have heard the call sign. I think it's probably reallocated, but uh, it's certainly a popular one to have. Nearly 100 years since we've had amateur radio, radio hams in New Zealand. That would be right. It is 100 years. In fact, the grandson uh, of, of both operators, the first communication to the UK happened in uh, the lower part of the South Island. And to celebrate the 100 years... Uh, the two grandsons of the operators uh, reenacted the uh, communication just a couple of years ago, and that made television. And uh, there was quite a quite a to do in the the amateur bulletin called Breakin', and uh, it was uh, it was a great event, and it was certainly good that there was lots of uh, photos available from the original equipment of a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Of what course, you- with amateur radio, uh, Morse code. It works hand in hand. Morse code was the real. That was really the only mechanism that got through in those days, and the operators that used it were very skilled. Uh, Morse code is not required any longer for amateur radio, but many of the elder amateurs still practice the art, and it's certainly a, a an art to be able to uh, send and receive Morse code and some of these operators, particularly the ones that were wartime operators back in, in, in 43, uh, they, uh, used amateur radio after the war and they could make a cup of coffee. They could have a chat on the side and 
write down the morse that came in and then sit down and send it back and never miss a word. And I said to my my dad, who was an amateur operator and a wartime operator, how can you do that? And he said to me, well, he says, it's like singing a song. If you know the words, it just flows. Well, even the phonetics that you use in the alphabet you adopt for the clarity that it brings over vast distances, it's hard to fathom unless we're initiated into it. For instance, your radio ham call sign, what, what is it? Uh, ZL1HN. Which can be expressed? As Hamilton. It's and the old P- P- post office abbreviation for Hamilton, HN. And if you were spelling that out on the airwaves? Uh, it would be Zulu Lima 1 Hotel Norway. And people catching um, snippets of such sound, <laughs> imagining you're talking about something altogether different and wondering what makes it tick. Well, the reason they use phonetics is it's very easy to confuse and try and give you an example to hear an S and an F. If you're saying F S, it, it it doesn't always come through. The S sounds like an F. So so if you say Fox for F and Sierra for S, it's clear that that's what you mean. Even if there's static in the background. Yes, even with static in the background, phonetics comes through. The sound is so pure in broadcasting FM these days that we've almost forgotten what it is to hear. To be exposed to static and be trying to grasp those out of the air airwaves to grasp those race results or footy scores well yes it is but um the the first voice modulation was called am which stands for amplitude modulation and there is a a, a group of people that come on the air uh on a friday morning on am and a lot of these guys have restored second world war transmitters which would fill this room literally some of it a massive amount of gear and and they've got it working perfectly like the day it was built in the 1950s a new mode came along which was called single side band and uh, some refer to that as duck talk when you're trying to listen on a conventional am receiver but that um, mode penetrates through the noise like no other mode and even today, uh, single sideband is still by far the best mode and, and today pretty much the only one used uh, on HF. Well, there are some very famous, there were, there were, be, were some very famous radio hams. Astronaut Yuri Gagarin was one. Um, even king, the former king of Spain, Juan Carlos, was a radio ham. I don't know if he's still doing King of Santa Jordan. Yeah, and of course... The most infamous radio ham was the late Marlon Brando. So uh, I wonder if anybody in New Zealand had a chat to Marlon Brando when he was alive. Uh, no, I didn't, but my dad spoke to King Hussein of Jordan regularly on 20 metres, uh, and he was an interesting uh, uh, chap. Um, actually, I just received something which uh, kind of surprised me. I had a contact into Spain, and what I didn't know when I was talking to the guy, uh, to the guy it was the the King of Spain, a uh, King of Spain, and he sent me a QSL card confirming the contact. And as this was Juan Carlos. 
Noah's son. Yes, that's right. And I got a photo of him and his wife and uh, all dressed out in all the all the gold robes and stuff. So I do really value that uh, card. But radio is in a leveller in that um, you can't distinguish the finery from anything else. No, well, I had no idea who it was, but I enjoyed the contact because he could talk about all sorts of things. A sense of achievement over great distances. Last occasion you were on the air, I presume, was yesterday. Yes. And there you... Well, not quite. I had a net this morning. So you're on the job there. It's a a sort of a constant presence in your life, Brian. Well, the reason that I... um, Well, there's two reasons. With the net in the morning, there was about 20 guys on from Morrinsville, Kiki, Tiamutu, Otrahonga, Ragland, Hamilton, and surrounding districts, basically. And we all have a little chat about different things. One... One guy um, wants to buy his grandson an electric welder, but he didn't really know what to buy, so he put a call out to the guys, who knows about welding? I want to buy my grandson electric welder. So he um, got some advice on which one to buy and why to buy the one that's a little bit more expensive than the lower-end one and the, the benefits. So that was helpful. And there was lots of other little tips that uh, go on, but... Uh, there's another a good feature in that. Now, the age group, the oldest member that we talk to daily, every morning at 9 o'clock, um, his age is 96, and then there's a 93-year-old, and there's an 86-year-old, and there's several in that age group, and they live on their own. So by checking in in the morning at 9 o'clock, we know that they're all good and they're up and they're well and, and that. But if they don't turn up, well, we know then to either give them a ring and see if they just slept in or something, or if we haven't heard anything on the phone, we can get someone to go check up on them. And we did just recently have a 93-year-old who didn't turn up. When we checked up, he'd had a fall at 7.30 that morning and... Uh, uh, was lying on the floor and um, he was able to press his, his button on his thing and the ambulances came and took him off to hospital. In fact, that's where I went yesterday, down to Tiamu to uh, Mankariki home to visit him. And he's in good spirits, but broken bone in his leg, so uh, he'll be there a wee while. Well, what a wonderful backup that is. Of course, it could have been a mere power cut that would re... Absolutely, it could. But a lot of these guys have got battery backups. So what they do is they have a, a power supply and a battery. So if the mains goes off, the battery takes over and runs it. Mm-hmm. So if there's a grave emergency, perish the thought, and the power's down, you're able to carry on. Yes. And what about um, cell phones and so forth? Well, the cell phones have their place, but if there's a real emergency, what can often happen is, uh, and I'll use the Christchurch earthquake as an example because that's something that I took an interest in. Uh, when the earthquake came, a lot of the cell sites were out and uh, so people couldn't use their cell phones. And um, so luckily the amateurs hopped in straight away within minutes, literally a couple of minutes, they had communications uh, on the, on the sites. Uh, we had an HF link, so I was able to call Christchurch 
uh, from here. We checked in the different districts to see where it really was, and then we realised quickly it was Christchurch. So we had an HF link to Christchurch, and then the local hams had a two-metre link, which is a VHF short-range communications on FM. And um, so they assisted the police and the fire service and then after about half an hour ago, the, the council's um, civil defence department got activated and uh, they came out. And then um, it turned out that the fire service had the latest Havman command vehicles, which have all communication equipment in. And so they brought these big trucks in from other districts. There was five of them and they linked all five trucks to give all the emergency service communications uh, to to operate that that, that event um, and so um, uh, what I was pleased to see is the investment in this uh, technology in the trucks gave public service brilliant public service so you guys were in contact say because the civil defense headquarters HQ is in the beehive in Wellington yes so you're in contact with them at the beehive uh, there has been events where, yes, that happens, and uh, uh, there's a lot, quite often dual roles because the police play a, a real uh, important role here uh, where they have got uh, a group of volunteers made up of very fit tr- trampers, very fit amateurs, and uh, they will uh, they will turn to and uh, come out and do search-type search um, work and uh, so the the amateurs, the trampers, and the police SARS group work extremely well together. Yeah. We uh, had a big storm here in Hamilton the other night. Watched it from the window. Um, does this these storms and this lightning interfere with your transmissions? Uh, yes, it can do. But I've got a choke on mine, so that if the lightning comes in, it doesn't burn the radio out. It goes straight to ground. And so um, unless you're prepared for that sort of thing, it can cause damage. But in my case, I haven't had a problem. How about down at the site you chose yesterday for a little exercise on your radios? The passing trains, would they have posed a problem if they were electric? Um, Possibly they could have. We didn't experience that. But yes, there's 11,000 volt lines, uh, they were about, what, 150 metres away? It might have been far enough away not to cause a problem. What are the ideal setups that give you the maximum chance of reaching on your tiny radios, sometimes underpowered, considering the distances they're going? (laughs) Well, a, a, a decent antenna would be good if we had the land to do it. I'd love to put up a, what they call it, a big loop or, or a rhombic on a on a farm somewhere where it was nice and quiet away from power lines. Electric fences? Uh, electric fences can be a problem, but then again, that comes back to how well the farmers earth the the stake that goes to the fence. Sometimes it it's due to not enough earth or maybe some faulty crimp connections to the fence, but generally fences aren't bad if it's done properly. Well, Hamilton City Council must have rules of people putting up antennae on on their roofs for amateur radio. What are those rules? Um, Well, I can't quote them off the top of my head, but generally speaking, there's a 15-metre rule. You can put up a a tower uh, or or a pipe uh, to 15 metres without a permit. That complies within the district plan. 
there are some exceptions where you can apply to council for a dispensation and under certain circumstances I'll grant that uh, there's been public hearings about this uh, on a number of occasions where the council tried to to squash it but the council was very quickly informed that this service does good public service and in the event of some sort of tragedy um, the amateurs uh, play a role and um, it's a license that you have to uh, sit so you've got to learn the theory set the license to get the exam and that would be unfair for council to circumvent government uh, legislation to say you can be an amateur and council to say you can't have an aerial so uh, that got sorted out and Hamilton City Council have been very good about it. So with that sense of understanding the role a person might be motivated by public duty even to learn about this art but they might not know the difference between a capacitor and whatever else your equipment <laughs> involves. And uh, when could they find an opportunity to...? Well, that's one of the beauties about the fellowship of amateur radio. Like, I'm the president of the Raglan Club, and my friend, John Lissanoli, is the president of the Radio and Electronics Group Club. So we try and work together on on projects that uh, are beneficial to to the amateurs or to the public. So the Radio and Electronics Group are going to have a, a weekend for, for a course and basically what they're going to do is they're going to teach the radio theory required for an amateur ticket on the Saturday and then on the Sunday they're going to have a refresher for half a day of the material learnt on the Saturday and then uh, in the afternoon of the Sunday, they're actually going to sit the exam mm -hmm. and see how they go. Now, at the moment, they've got 25 candidates who have booked to do this course. And uh, after we met you yesterday, we're talking to John, and John's attitude was, if they had more applicants after this uh, show wanting to join, that they would endeavour to, to accommodate them. Well, people can listen to the podcast tomorrow onwards of, of this interview and maybe they'll get into contact with you. Are there any numbers for contact? Uh, yes, you could give out John's number. I've asked him and he's happy about that. And you give out mine. I'm more than happy. Yours first? Yes. 021-203-4193. Brian. And the one for John Leeson Jolly is zero two one two zero four five nine nine zero. You may have heard some beeps going off in the background. You've brought some equipment into the studio with you, Brian. I did, I did, and um, uh, there's um, very compact. Yes, this is uh, the latest actually technology. It's a an ICOM radio, and it's a, a portable with a nice screen, digi talk, and everything like that on it. I can just press this button here. Just to give you a little laugh. Uh, Any messages? Eight, eight, one, four, five, point, three, five megahertz, DV. Now, the benefit of that is with some of the operators, because we're all getting a bit grey-headed now, sometimes the site's no good, so this has got a big display on it, and it's got voice enhancement. So by pressing that button, if you can't see the screen, it talks to you what what the frequencies is. It's user-friendly. It's user-friendly, and it's, it's intuitive to use. Um, so what I'm going to do now is uh, 
because we're in the basement here. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, here we go. This has been picked up by our microphone, so yeah, we're, we're right. And this person's in America. I'll give him a call. This is Zulu Lima 1 Hotel November in Hamilton, New Zealand, looking for a demonstration of uh, D-Star Radio. If anyone could come back with a call, please, over. What, t- what time in America is it? K-K-7. Oh. Bravo, Sierra Romeo, Tucson, Arizona. Ah, very good there. Thank you for coming back. The name here is Brian, and I'm in the city of Hamilton, 80 miles south of Auckland. Very nice to hear you from Coonson, Arizona. Uh, what, what's your name, and uh, what, uh, what's the weather like there today? Over. Um, my name is Scott Brian, and I didn't catch the second part of your question. Uh, what what's the weather like and what time is it there now? Over. Uh, here in Arizona, it is in the afternoon. It is about seventeen thirty-eight. So that's five thirty-eight uh, in your evening. Well, that's very good. Well, thank you very much. This is live on radio, so I won't hold it, and uh, we'll catch you another time. Uh, Seventy-three from Hamilton, New Zealand. Coming back in 73 from Tucson, Arizona, JK7, BSR clear. Cheers. <laughs> like that, uh, 5.37 in America and in Arizona, in the desert, it must be good for amateur radio being in the desert. Yes, it is. It would be nice and quiet, that's for sure. And uh, But it just goes to show the wide range of opportunities there are. Now, you talked about the uh, space station. We've talked to the space station via the system. And um, I'd have to say another little story. When my son was at school, an astronaut came to um, school and he was talking about the space station and that. And, uh, and my son asked him a question and he said to him that uh, he's talked to the space station on amateur radio and the astronaut said... Well, I'm a ham too. Maybe when I'm up there next, we can talk. And when he finished his talk, he came down the stage, talked to my son about amateur radio. Oh, it all sounds so natural, so casual. It's the uh, other side of what we see as a highly technological revolution with a lot of inherent dangers in the fringe of space. Oh, yes, well... Um, there are some websites, of course, that you can go to and see some brilliant photos and uh, things. But, you know, if you get to know an astronaut, they all, uh, when they, the, the cycles every 90 minutes, uh, when they come over New Zealand, uh, literally they can talk to you from a little handheld. They, they do have proper equipment in there, but they have tried it. Um, if they had an emergency up there and lost their power, they could pull out a handheld and talk back to Earth. Well, that's amazing. Brian Farrell, former Hamilton City Councillor, you served one term here, and a man who's up with the times when it comes to communication. Thank you for joining us on Free FM 89.0. Don't forget the uh, nine years on the Well Energy Trust and the big fight we had to get it back to local energy. Oh, look, I I remember those stories, and you must, uh, if Martin Gallagher's listening, maybe he is, just say hello to Martin because... Hello, Martin. I uh, haven't caught up with you lately, but uh, 
it's nice being back in the studio and I can remember when you uh, sat me in the hot seat when something came up one day and I, I filled in for you. And within minutes we hope to be able to speak to a former mayor who served three terms, I think, right. Margaret Evans. Ah, oh, yes, I know Margaret. Yep. Yeah, talking about space, let's play a bit of the theme from Space 1999 with Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. And uh, we were talking about Barbara Bain last week. She's very much alive because we've got a link to Mission Impossible coming up before we go at 2 o'clock. Yeah, that's the theme from Space 1999. We just had Brian with communications, and one of the best communicators, I think, in Hamilton is former Mayor Margaret Evans. Good afternoon, Margaret. Good afternoon, you two. How are we? Well, you know, the sun is shining. It's a beautiful long weekend. I should be still out in the garden getting rid of those weeds that have grown up, but that's all right. Happy to talk to you guys. You've come to tell us the latest on the founders? <laughs> If that's what you'd like me to do, happy to do that. Yeah. What's, what is the latest? Is there any news we should know about or have they uh, changed course again? Well, I'm not sure where you have the latest chapter, but um, a month ago the council agreed that rather than demolishing the founder, they would um, postpone that idea for a while and bring the founders into a current exercise that's being undertaken looking at building a new community hub in the city, in the central city, I should say. And a community hub is just a really poncy name for a community centre where various um, different activities and groups can be based. And what's prompted the council to go down this pathway is um, the concerns over the Celebrating Age Centre, which I'm sure everybody knows has been closed now, because of maintenance problems. And so the council was beginning to look at whether or not that should be redeveloped, can be redeveloped, and how it should be redeveloped, bearing in mind lots and lots and lots of community groups use that. And then the other popular site in Hamilton is on the corner of um, Wood Street, where you've got the men's shed and art makers 
and a couple of other groups. That's the corner right opposite um, Girls High, mm-hmm. the old Ministry of Works building. Yes, I know the building. I don't live in any of this area anymore, so, but I know yeah, that building. It's, it's very old, and um, uh, apparently we've now read most of the reports, um, also strongly in need of maintenance. So the council has got engaged um, some nationwide specialists called Property Group. And because they were going down the pathway to look at particularly those two sites uh, um, on the eve of the elections, absolutely fantastically, they decided that they would bring the founders into that study. So we were thrilled to bits because, as we've said all along, here you have a three and a half thousand square metre building that's solid as a rock. And we developed a list of, oh, goodness knows, I didn't count them all, 30, 40 or 50 groups who had all approached us, some by word of mouth, some directly, and ranging from arts and music groups to the various um, cultural and ethnic societies, a whole wide range of them. And so we sat down with the consultants who certainly um, I can't praise enough. They seem to be very tuned in to um, what's happening. And they asked us to give them our list. And we agreed to do that. And then we essentially swapped the lists. And this is the process they're following. Um, They have contacted, my understanding is, because they sent us their list, (laughs) they've contacted all the different groups and individuals on that list, and they've done a questionnaire, which essentially is to try and refine just what the needs are. And uh, as we pointed out to them, this is the work we'd already done with some groups. It's about, do you need um, lock-up facilities? Do you need offices? Do you need a meeting place? Will you be uh, um, 52 weeks a year uh, in this? Or do you want just once a week or once a month? So it's a whole pile of different usage Mm -hmm. that um, this group is now quite formally doing for the council which is fantastic. Uh, At 4.30 Tuesday, um, there's a workshop um, or a briefing session at the council reception lounge, 4.30 to 5.30, and it's also um, accessible on Zoom for those people who can't get there. And (coughs) Debbie and co are going to be, with council staff, um, briefing those various parties about where they got to. Then the planners they are going to workshop some of those groups to see who might uh, be able to work together. Because as we all know, not everybody can work together. (laughs) So um, it's not always like-minded groups. It's whether they can cohabit. And uh, we thought that was a very important part of the, the overall approach. And then finally, this group, is these consultants are due to report back to council in February for decisions to be made yep. in March. Well, well, with this, um, talking to Brian Farrell about civil defence, could the founders um, be, a, be a hub if we, if ever, we hope not, have a civil defence emergency here in the city? Well, of course it could be. But um, because of the risk of that, she says tongue-in-cheek, we think it's much better purpose to have it thriving as a community centre. Mm. Um, fabulous facilities, yep. fabulous ideas, yep. 
And you know, what we explain to the consultants is what we've been trying to say to the council for how many years now? The last four or five years. This is a big, empty public space. It's yeah. as solid as a rock. It needs about a million dollars worth of earthquake proofing, which was not urgent, I might say, but we're keen to do that. And we've got already a million dollars in cash promised and lots of um, services. So we're saying to the council, we can provide this urgently needed facility very quickly, probably about 18 months once we get the tick from council for the first part of it to be opened. Now, can you imagine what the time frame will be if the council does a purpose-built new facility? Let's say the Celebrating Age Centre, because we think that's a great spot, and we think in the city of ours, there's a need, there's a need for at least one new facility. Two. Yeah. <laughs> we well, found it. And that's where the Founders uh, does come in. Um, yep. We can do it quickly. It'll be beautiful. It's in a great position to be accessible to lots of people, and if the council wants to go further down the path and do another one, to repair where the Celebrating Age Centre, that's another great spot. Yeah. And surely the city could be beneficial. Yeah. Just another point before we go, Margaret, too. I notice people are taking interest in the statue of Dame Hilda Ross in Garden Place. People are going past there and looking at her figure there and having photos <laughs> taken with her. <laughs> oh, I love her. I've seen her with a baby. Somebody taking a photograph, I seriously say, with a baby in her arms. Yep. She's had bouquets of flowers, and it's wonderful, isn't it? I have to say, however, um, there has been no progress. Uh, the council had um, had negotiated with us where we agreed that we would drop the idea of converting Ward Street into Dame Hilda Ross uh, um, Lane or whatever, and they were going to come forward with a plan to do a walkway um, as part of Garden Place leading down to the river. Yep. And that was going to be the Dame Hilda Ross Way. Um, You've just reminded me, yep. we need to prod this new council and remind them that um, it was a promise. Yeah. Anyway, Margaret, we'll keep up with you because we've got a couple of more things to go before I disappear out of here at 2 o'clock. Thank you, and we'll let you get back in the garden. Okay, thank bye, you. Have bye, a good day. Bye. bye. There we are, Margaret Evans. Afternoon, Dwayne. Yeah, good afternoon. What's what's happening? Um, yesterday, after, well, yesterday morning, there was um, a big ram raid um, at Nolimins in Cambridge. Yes, I read the story this morning. <coughs> uh, also, there was another one in Raglan as well. Electronics gear, we've got vapes going, we've got places boarded up. We're becoming a ghetto. With all these boarded up shops. We could have uh, another Auckland. Yep. Well, what do we do? We, well, I'm sick of politicians talking, talking, talking. We need we need action. And that goes with that that guy who sits in Lisbeth Street. We need action on him too. We need we need to get tough on these people. Well, council need to pull their finger and um, get things sorted out. Anyway, Dwayne, thank you for bringing us up to date with what's happening uh, around the city and hopefully things will be moving. So, and yeah. Also, um, the uh, police checkpoint last night, yes. one guy tried to be smart 
and um, trying to get away from the cops, did a burnout, and about halfway through, he got chased as far as um, now here. Oh, this and is, got his car impounded. This 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 was last week. No, um, uh, another one. Yep. Well, there was one last weekend on the corner of Victoria and Hood Street because the burnout um, marks are still on the road. Yeah, but this one here was between um, Cortlands Bridge yeah. and um, London Street. Anyway, I'll let you go, and if you'd like to bring Trevor in here because we I did some homework this week for Trevor, so if you bring Trevor in here, we'll uh, just keep talking while he comes in because um, we'll... Just let him in here. And here he is. Hey, Trevor, how are we? Oh, not too bad. That's right, too bad. You, you sent me some homework for last week, so let's play the music. <laughs> you want to know what happened to actor Stephen Hill? That's right, yeah. He's still a, a survivor from that early he years. He is not. He is deceased. It is deceased. Right, yeah. he played Dan Briggs. That's right. In season <coughs> one of Mission Impossible. That's correct. He was born in February 24, 20, 1922, and he died in August 23, 2016. Why he left Mission Impossible was that he was uh, he was Jewish, and they were filming Mission Impossible on the Sabbath. He was a... Orthodox Jew, ah. so he could, he had to he had to he had to leave the series because they were working on a Friday. So it became an impossible mission. <laughs> it, it did. So that brings in <coughs> that brings me. in, of course, um, Jim Phelps, that's played right. by the late Peter Graves. Yeah, so, that's correct. But Stephen Hill did appear through the years on other on other programs. So yeah. that's why they had a cover up why he disappeared from uh, oh, right. so they do that in T V land. Anyway, sir, what's uh, what's going on? Well I, I went into countdown the other day, about a week ago, and there's no Blackberry jam. <laughs> so I went to the reception area and inquired about when they would be restocked. And the lady there said, Oh, there should still be some Blackberry jam there according to our records. So we went down together and had another check, but they weren't there. They must have obviously been sold. And on the way back, she said, I know where I can get some blackberry jam in Wanganui. <laughs> oh, right, that's interesting, I said. And she went all the way to Wanganui to get me a, a jar of blackberry jam and brought it back, left it at reception counter for me to collect in a gift bag free of charge. Good stuff, and now, you... Now, talk about service. And you, and you bought a loaf of, loaf of bread with it? Uh, no, well, I went there specifically for that because I already done my shopping uh, bar there. Mm. And I thought, well, that must be the, the, the most incredible service in the history of retails in the world to well, go to that strength, extent. I mean, it's not exactly next door, Wanganui, to go all that way to get me blackberry jam... So hopefully they, well, they didn't buy one jar, they bought a whole crate of it back to, back to Hamilton. Oh, no, well, said, what, just one for me. Uh, it wasn't to do with the shop or anything like that. This is uh, bought, she obtained it privately and gave it to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, have you ever heard such incredible service? Well, you've done it again, Trevor. You've, 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 you're an influencer. <laughs> <laughs> 
So special thanks for that lady. I can't quite remember her name on the top of my head, but if she's listening, thank you for what you've done. Anyway, we'll take you out with Lalo Shifkin. I hope you got his name right because he did the Mission Impossible thing. Thank you. Thanks for your company this afternoon. We've had Margaret Evans, we've had Brian Farrell, and we've had a man who's over 70 going to play cricket in Tasmania. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.